Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. Sweethearts, what are you waiting for? Breakfast in bed? Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. Where's Basket? Let's rock! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host... Patrick Green, what up? And tonight, we are here to talk about James Cameron. This is episode two in our 40 Miles of Bad Road series, and I'm really excited to continue this series. This is re- it's, just, it's just a great time for our show. Before we get into that, I want to uh, give a shout-out to Dom, who is our new patron via Patreon. Thank you so much. Like I always like to say... Any money that we get via Patreon, any support that we get, just goes right back into the show, and we have a lot planned for this next year. Next year's a big year, 2019. It's the 40-year anniversary of Alien. So, uh, again, thank you. Thank you, Dom. That is freaking awesome. Welcome aboard. Uh, before we go any further into the body of the episode, we want to uh, share some feedback we've gotten over the last week uh, with you guys, and we're going to do more of this going forward. So not just on listener feedback shows, not just on um, sort of discussion forums, but just in general episodes, we're going to try to share more of what we hear from you guys, whether that be in Building Better Worlds or on our Facebook page or sent to perfectorganismpodcast at gmail.com or through voice messages um, on that number in your show notes or via Messenger on Facebook, there are many ways, or Twitter, there's very many ways you can get a hold of us, and and we really want to have a more direct link with you guys, because the show exists because of and for you, and for all of us, so um, don't hesitate to reach out, we're going to share some cool stuff that we've gotten from listeners, and then we're going to get into the episode. First, um, our good friend Dusty Tweedhope, who uh, had some incredible steel sculptural art from Alien 3 that we shared with you guys recently, check that out if you haven't. Um, it's really amazing. He's a welder um, and a BMX artist, too. Um, he sent a message. He says, it was cool. And this is in relation to episode 93, our previous one in the series. He said, it was cool to hear some of your guys' thoughts on where it could have gone after Alien. The derelict was the biggest thing for me in the wrap-up of that film. It was the one thing that left ha- that was left hanging, in my opinion, as well as the big one for me. What's the deal with the company? They obviously knew about the ship, giving orders to Ash and keeping it secret about the alien. So how do they know about it? Were there missions in the past already? Obviously, there was knowledge of the alien and the derelict. There could be so much backstory there. I always found that to be a massive open door for the universe to explore. Um, And he also talks a little bit about how he finds Amanda Ripley um, really interesting, too. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit more about one of those points as we kind of kick things off. But that was a big question going into Aliens is... um, do you go into that doorway that was sort of left open, or do you not? And Cameron took a very different route, which we will talk about. But you have some things you wanted to share as well. Yeah, so this comes from our Facebook page, our official Facebook page, which is a certainly discussion group for 
perfect organism, but it's also just a general discussion group for all things alien, not predator. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this, this is building better worlds. This is building better worlds. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Connor, who is our point person in charge of building better worlds, he's one of our partners. He made a post today about James Cameron. And this episode tonight, we're talking about James Cameron. So Connor made a post kind of in light of that. And we got some responses and we want to kind of read them and then kind of talk about it. And so the first one is from Lloyd Lisseth. Hopefully I'm saying your name right, Lloyd. Lloyd says, Wish he directed more films. I'm thinking alien films. Wish he would have given us more alien and Terminator stories. Wish he would have been in charge of the Transformers series. Yeah, well, whatever. Transformers is a one-trick pony. Um, and that, that, that cow is dry. Um, well, you know what? It, honestly, if anybody could make it into more than a one-trick pony, it would be Cameron. And, and not true. only because not only because he makes good movies, but because he loves technology and science and things like that so much. I bet he could probably have found interesting stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's like a. I don't think no matter what you do with Transformers, it's not going to be exactly. They're not, riveting, they're not these riveting. They're not these riveting in-depth um, studies about you know science. But there fiction. could be. There could be. No, there right? be. You could. You, yeah, you you put it in the right hands. You could make a fucking masterpiece out Maybe of a potato on a camera. Or Denny Villeneuve, but I just, it's just. If you, if you give Denny Villeneuve a candy cane and you say, look at, look at this through a camera, he'll make a fucking riveting film about that. I, I would watch a three hour Denny Villeneuve movie on a candy cane. I suppose. I'm going to go on a record saying that. Um, so our, the next comment is from one of our moderators from our group, Froyland. And Froyland says, I wish Titanic would have been 50% less successful in order to keep him hungry and productive. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, but That's a good point. He, James Cameron's a fucking genius, and he's succeeded in everything he's done. He has not made one flop. I mean, his his arguable flop wasn't even a flop. It just didn't do the kind of business aliens did, was The Abyss. And it still did gangbusters. Oh, my God. I love The Abyss. I love it except for the end. I thought it was fantastic. I remember the trailers when it came out on TV when I was a kid. I'll never forget. Um, mm. And Connor, I remember the, the the effects in that were so mind blowing oh, as yeah. a kid. Yeah, I remember. on my VHS tape, yeah. <laughs> watching yeah. watching that shit, I was like, "How are they doing that?" And then Terminator Two came out, and I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about that about how Cameron is just it's like he's like constantly um, been on the vanguard of what you can do with effects. You know? Yeah, yeah. So Connor, our, our moderator, our, our admin actually of Building Better Worlds, he writes underneath Froylan. Before writing this post, I had a look over his film library and was shocked at how small it was. Can't deny, though, that it seems whatever he touches turns to pure gold. Amen. It's true. I mean, he is Amen. he is an impossible success story. Um, he and Christopher Nolan are similar in the sense that everything that they make is amazing. I mean, you have a film like Dunkirk, which is kind of a World War II story. Very cerebral, very quiet, but everyone hears Christopher Nolan and they go running. Everybody hears mm-hmm. James Cameron and they run to the theater. Um, even Avatar, we discussed briefly, it was this kind of, eh, story. James, James Cameron directed it and it was amazing. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's important to note that although it took him like 10 years to make Avatar, in the, in the midst of that, he was, literally like plumbing the ocean depths he was at the bottom of the marianas trench he was did the first solo solo descent of it um he was building new fusion digital 3d technology that is is still like the gold standard on what you can do with 3d filmmaking um so it's interesting it's like it's like he he got money 
he made movies and then he slowed down his movie making and was able to more fully blossom into the sort of science artist that he is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, we're going to talk a lot about him in this episode, but man, such an interesting guy. Yeah, he really, really is. I mean, I, I, it's, it's almost like where do you start? Because from day one, it's almost like he had a plan. And mm. he, even though working with, I think it was Roger Corman who did Piranha 2, yep. um, he knew, okay, this is the film that I, I mean, it's like he's, it's like he was this mogul, this business, this, this, he's not just a director, he's an executive producer, he's a writer, he's a, like a, a almost like a story group, all in the, embodied in this one person. I mean, James Cameron is, even though I wish he, I know he, he's kind of like Michael Bay in the sense that he does spectacle, but he does spectacle deeper than Michael Bay. Michael Bay doesn't really do anything that's really deep. His shit is just mm-hmm. it's just kind of it's like it's like color on the wall, and that's all that it is. Whereas with Cameron, even though there is a lot of criticism over Avatar, um, there's some specific things he's specific story points he's trying to tell. I mean, he's there's a story oh, yeah. there. There's there's character. There's depth. Um, you, I look, I think about the character of Natiri, I think that's her name. Um, mm-hmm. she is fascinating character. You can feel her depth and her care and she's this digital creation. She's not even real. She's just brought to life by, um, Gamora actress. I can't remember her name right now. Um, uh, Zoe, uh, Saldana, uh, Saldana. yeah. Saldana, yeah. Um, um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I find virtually nothing redeeming about anything in Avatar. I, I really, I really don't. I've only I seen it once, so and I, I, I saw it once, that. and I was so disappointed in it that I never saw it again. Maybe I'm missing yeah, something. I, I saw, back. I've seen it twice, yeah. and I haven't seen it since. I saw it twice in the yeah. theater. One in, one in, um, IMAX or not IMAX, but one in 3D, which the 3D didn't do anything. But what I'm trying to say is, does that, it ever? I mean, have you, have you ever seen a movie where you're like, I'm so glad I saw that in 3D? No, I saw Prometheus in 3D, and I'm like, what the fucking point? It's just, it was r- ridiculous. Um, it's just and, darker. I'm like, it's just, it's just harder to see things. It's, it's harder to see things. And the funny thing is, it's kind of all gone away. Uh, for a while, mm-hmm. Hollywood was really trying to promote 3D. I don't really know why they were doing that. Even you have yeah. a, a director like, um, the director of uh, Casino. What's his name? Oh, my God. Bushy Eyebrows. Oh, um, uh, Goodfellas. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I know. don't remember his name. We're terrible film fans right now. Oh, my We're God. Sorry. Fucking Shutter Island. Shutter Island. I know. What I want is to say Robert De Niro. Fucking Raging Bull. No, it's not Robert, Robert De Niro. I know, I know, because he's an actor. I'm just saying. Oh, um, my God. Oh, my. He's literally one of Taxi Driver. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. I can't think of his fucking name. His name is Martin Scorsese. I may be synthetic, but I'm not stupid. Martin Scorsese, thank you. Oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, we talk about so much. Actually, uh, funny thing, when I get on a show and we're recording, I have so many things going through my head. People will notice mm. that I'll pause in between everything mm-hmm. that I say because I have so much fucking going through my head yeah. about um, – about what we're talking about and everything, so it takes me a while to kind of remember things that I should remember. See, just like when, that. when I pause, it's usually because I'm trying to stifle a burp. That's like honestly, <laughs> <laughs> my head is a is a wasteland, and then a burp comes. Um, but while we're stopped, actually, I should point out that actually, Piranha Two: The Spawning was not a Roger Corman film, but it was made almost entirely by Roger Corman kind of graduates. Um, but I thought it was too because Cameron, and we'll talk about this momentarily, really got his start with Roger Corman.
actually, you know, maybe why don't we go ahead and launch into that part of the discussion? Is that cool? Yeah. Kind of like how we got to this moment. So, in terms of starting things off, let's do a quick little recap of of where we were coming up to this from our last episode and from sort of some detail. Mm-hmm. So we had Alien, which was a big success, but um, was sort of a delayed success, and it was something that the the, the you know Geiler and Hill and Fox were discussing potential sequels to Ridley Scott was involved early on, not in any official capacity, but in, in the, in the sense that he was pitching a million ideas to them, most of which resemble Prometheus, which is very fascinating. Um, Brandywine, you know, the, the Gordon Carroll Hill, um, Guyler Hill thing, uh, was, uh, embroiled in a dispute with Fox for a while. So there was some bad blood there. Things were kind of put on hold. And then Fox, uh, and then Alan Ladd went off to to make the Ladd Company, which of course made Blade Runner. So Fox was in a transitional period. They got some new executives. The executives weren't hot on the idea. Those executives left. More executives came on. They decided they wanted to potentially greenlight it. They went to Brandywine and they said, "What are you going to do?" Brandywine made a pitch. They said, "We love it." <laughs> they they greenlit the film and then they said, "Actually, the story sucks. We're not going to do that story. So find somebody else to make a story." So the movie was being made without a script again. And I remember um, uh, the the interview with uh, David Geiler and he's like that script was awful we had to rewrite it he's so he's so honest I love it I know I love, <laughs> yeah, I love, I love Geiler um, and I, I don't know I mean actually I haven't read the original version of O'Bannon's script um, but I trust David Geiler I think he knows what he's doing um, I think I, so too so but it's interesting it's interesting that they, but they knew that there was a good story there they knew that the bones mm-hmm. the architecture of that script was something gripping oh totally but so the, the big the big change happened when Larry Wilson, who was an executive who had worked with Geiler previously, um, came across the Terminator, which was obviously a watershed moment in science fiction. And he was just in love with the script, loved the ideas in it, um, wanted to find out more about James Cameron. So they went to visit Cameron at his job at, at Corman Studios. And... Um, so this is sort of where Cameron really formally comes into the picture. Basically, um, and this is a this is a quote um, that John Carpenter gave to Sci-Fi Online when he was um, making Escape from New York. Uh, actually, uh, talking about the time period when he was making Escape from New York. So Carpenter says, "When I went over to visit the Corman facility where the special effects were done, Cor- uh, he, meaning Cameron, was the genius, the resonant genius. Everyone was talking about how great he was. I remember meeting him on the set of Escape from New York." Actually, it was over in the San Fernando Valley, and he was doing a glass painting for us. He was sitting on a hillside with some glass set up, painting a New York skyline to be able to shoot the next shot. It was just beautiful. He was really technically great. So Cameron at this point is, this is like 1980. You know, he's in his mid-20s. Um, he's working for Roger Corman as this effects guy, doing technical work, doing painting. I mean, it's it's important to remember that so many of the design ideas that made their way into aliens started with him you know like he's somebody who has a very holistic view of what goes into making a piece of visual art and he's much like ridley scott in that in that way he knows what Mm -hmm. good art is he knows what a good picture is he knows what it takes Mm -hmm. um and so let's just let's pause there for a second let's trace cameron's trajectory to that moment just quickly So Cameron was born in Canada in 1954. Um, he went to a community college to study physics. He dropped out. 
he switched uh, to a number of sort of side jobs, like blue-collar kind of stuff, and he would write in between. He saw Star Wars. He became obsessed with the possibilities of science fiction. And again, it's so funny how frequently Star Wars comes up, because you and I now have done a ton of interviews. You especially have interviewed about a billion people um, in the context of this show and also Shoulder of Orion. And it's, I mean, so many people say Star Wars was why I got into what I do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, even when we talk to people that, like, do art for comic books... Um, when we talked to Mark Mangini, the sound designer on Blade Runner 2049, so many of them say a seminal moment for me was Star Wars. And Cameron is no um, exception to that. He was a truck driver when Star Wars came out. He saw it. He became obsessed. And then he um, basically went to Hollywood and tried to become a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shot this this 10-minute sci-fi script with a bunch of friends called Xenogenesis. Um, it was kind of a mess, but he learned, he kind of cut his teeth doing that. And uh, then he got involved with Corman doing miniature models, which you see incredible examples of in Aliens and Terminator and Terminator 2. Um, and so he was kind of in that milieu at the time. And then in the very early 80s, in 81, he came into Piranha 2, The Spawning, which is a, a kind of a funny story because the director had left and then Cameron came, kind of came on out of nowhere. And it's this absolutely insane film that I kind of like. Um, so that was kind of where he was. And then he wrote the script called The Terminator, and the Terminator was just one of these moments of such genius that everybody who came in contact with it stopped. Yeah. And they said, we have to get a hold of this guy. And it was just the but script, really, that, it that was just script, the script itself yeah. that was like, hey, this guy's a hot property. What else is he doing? What else is he working right. on? What can we else? What else can we get him to work on? I mean, that was re- one of the reasons why he was at Fox at the time, because they wanted to talk about him, talk with him about other projects, not really right. Alien. Right. And what and just like we brought up on the last episode, right before he came into Aliens, this just incredible moment of Hollywood serendipity happened where he basically couldn't shoot the Terminator because of a contractual dispute with Arnold Schwarzenegger, <clears throat> who uh, had been signed up to do a Conan sequel and um, Conan the Barbarian sequel. And so it was basically totally on hold, even though it had already been cast. Um, it had been designed. It was ready to go. They couldn't shoot it even though the script was there and everybody was saying he was a genius. And right in that moment, Fox goes to him, and they hit it off, and it turns out that he'd already been working on a project, which we'll talk about momentarily, and the rest is history. Yeah. Yeah. So he had been working on this thing called Mother at the time, um, which I have never read. I don't, I, I've, I've done a ton of research into this online over the years trying to get a copy of it. If anybody listening to this has it or knows how to get it um i would really love to read the script uh it's as far as i know not published anywhere digitally not anywhere that we can get to it um the original title of mother was actually et which i think is funny and then like within months of deciding that steven spielberg's (laughs) movie came out and he was like well now what am i going to call it and he switched it to mother and the reason for that i think um, is because there's this maternal element to it that is totally all throughout Aliens, where there was kind of a Ripley-like protagonist. There was basically an alien queen facsimile. In yeah. Um, there's a and, power loader versus yep. alien fight towards the end, yep. just like Aliens. Yep. Um, and then not only that kind of stuff, there's also uh, there's a, a, a nefarious company. Um there's literally the term xenomorph in the script, and you know, as as I just said, he had just made a short called Xenogenesis. That was something that he was working with already and thinking about a lot. Um, so there were all of these themes sort of set in place. 
So he gets asked to write this treatment for the film, and he stays up for a couple days, drinks coffee, you know, probably shits his brains out. <laughs> and he comes up with this. I always think about that. Like when George, you know, George Lucas, when he was writing Star Wars, how like he was surviving on coffee and like candy bars. I'm like, man, must have been some disgusting poops going on. Can you imagine that? No. Just I, living, I never, living I never think about that, Patrick. You never. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should. Guess you don't like the cornbread either. So there, so there were all of these elements in place. So just again to recap, Fox was suddenly able to make this movie. Cameron was a genius who was kind of undiscovered, whose project was on hold. This dispute with Brandywine and Fox was finally over. Things got greenlit. There were executive changes at Fox that allowed that to happen. And all of a sudden they had a budget and they had a movie and they had a filmmaker. And now we go into writing the actual script. Yeah. Pretty pretty amazing. The set of circumstances that led to that. It's really, really amazing. And you know, I... I think as we grow up from, you know, from, you know, childhood to adult, I think a lot of things that we experience in our life is probably a combination of our experience and our know-how and serendipity and the people that we know. And and really, James Cameron, I mean, he has this trajectory that's just in-fucking-credible. I mean, I, I can't even he. He's he's an incredible genius, and he shares a lot with. And we're going to discuss this more during this episode. Uh, there's a lot that he has in common, not only with Ridley Scott, but with David Fincher. Very similar trajectories. David Fincher mm-hmm. was even more plugged in because he was uh, like a second unit cameraman on Return of the Jedi. I mean, talk about pedigree. I mean, that man was yeah. in film for since he was 19 years old. Well, I was um, gonna, he was literally a teenager at that. Yeah, time. yeah, um, but. The way things turned out for him was very different. Um, yeah, but uh, I, to get back to Cameron, yeah, it's he's 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 uh, uh, he's really a, a genius, uh, and it's it's interesting to talk about him because I don't think that he's a certain kind of genius. He's not a he's not like a, a Denis Villeneuve. He's not a um, a Ridley Scott, and he's also not a David Fincher. He's very much in the Kind of in the from pulled from the fabric of Michael Bay, but he's a better version of Michael Bay. He's a more, he's a well he's a more thought out Michael Bay. He's a more heartfelt Michael Bay. There's there's a lot to him. Not to say that there isn't a lot to Michael Bay as a person. I'm just saying based off what I know in the films that I've seen. I mean I've seen every Cameron film he's released. Um, mm-hmm. I, the one thing that I didn't like that he produced was. Uh, that Dark Angel series that was on Fox. I didn't yeah, like right. The TV show. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that w- that wasn't great. Um, it's funny. It's it's pretty easy to see everything that he's put out because there just hasn't been that much of it, you know. Because yeah. he's been such a bu- a busy person with these enormous projects going on. It's just insane. Um, before we go past um, too too deeply into that, I just want to just give one more little tidbit for people who don't know something similar to what happened in Resurrection between Fox and uh, and. Um, Joss Isn't Whedon it? happened. Yeah, <laughs> can't think of names tonight. We'll say Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Something that happened in Resurrection between Fox and Joss Whedon happened between Brandywine and Cameron, which is that they basically gave a directive. So the story was being written, and then they said one specific thing that needed to happen. In the case of Resurrection, that directive was cloning, right? 
And that or, was when Godwin I don't know Hill if that directive out. was cloning. I think they said you need to bring her back somehow. And I don't think that was they was specifically cloning for resurrection. They just told him you need to bring Ripley back. And he had to Yeah, you're right. You yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. So yeah, it might not have been as overt as that, but but the idea was like she has to come back somehow. Yeah. Um and in an earlier version had Newt I think being cloned. So 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 the the cloning was was in the was in the mix. But but the idea was you have to bring Ripley back, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is our mandate to you. In this one, the the whole mandate that Guyler and Hill gave to Cameron was you need to have Ripley and you need to have something militaristic. And that was kind of, you know, the genesis of this whole arc, um, which is pretty amazing. I only need to know one thing, where they are. Anytime, anywhere. Right, right. Somebody said alien. She thought they said illegal alien and signed up. Fuck you, man. Anytime, anywhere. Are you finished? So I guess... um, you know, we can kind of pivot a little bit to talking about Cameron as a filmmaker and some of the things that he's done and, and you know, how we feel about about them and how echoes of that can be seen um, in Aliens. I guess if you could if you could put James Cameron into like a paragraph, what would you what would you describe him as as a filmmaker? Um, if I could describe James Cameron as a filmmaker, I would say, number one, he's all heart because uh, I really believe he is all heart. Number two, he is know-how. Number three, he is a technological genius. And those things, those three things together are fire. Um, that's how I would describe him. And, I mean, I would go on to say then he's a, he's a mogul. He's, a, he's his own, he's almost his own um, film studio. He is. I mean, Fox is essentially, he made Avatar the biggest moneymaker of all time. Before that, it was Titanic. Uh, I mean, now the biggest moneymaker of all time domestically is The Force Awakens. But Fox is just like, here's here's $300 million. Go do whatever you want to do. They just right. say, we know, you know, he's, I mean, he's made, I think Avatar made $2 billion. I mean, he's <laughs> it's crazy. He, he is their bread and butter. And I'm sure Fox is, I know Fox is going through a merger right now, but um, James Cameron can do whatever he wants to do. And I'm sure Disney will be like, oh, bowing to him, you know. Because he has always delivered, you know, like he just you give him an an enormous budget and he will make a product that people will see. Yeah. What do you think? What what are what are your thoughts when you think about him? I agree that he's all heart. And I think sometimes that is something that gets made fun of a little bit in the same way people tease Christopher Nolan sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think part of what appeals to me a lot about both of those filmmakers is that even though they're both very heady, they're both very connected to this kind of Spielbergian emotional connection to mm-hmm. wonderment and to emotional attachment yeah. you know I, I think I, I think to me the maybe the most fluid filmmaker ever is Spielberg in that he basically can just take a camera and tell a story and it feels like it's always existed you know yeah. Yeah. like he's just so good at directing films but I feel like I feel like people like Cameron and people like Nolan <laughs> people like Martin Scorsese <laughs> I gotta keep getting his name in there they're all similarly gifted at telling stories that really resonate with a very broad range of people. What's interesting is that Cameron and, and Nolan, I keep kind of thinking of them in the same bucket, they both tackle strange things, you know? Like, I don't think anybody at the twilight of the 20th century was thinking, oh man, we really need to talk about the Titanic, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't on the centenary of the sinking um, it wasn't something people were talking about, but because Cameron's scientific exploits have always informed his movie making exploits, and he was all in on deep sea exploration, 
um, he really felt an emotional connection to that kind of stuff. It mm-hmm. made sense to him in his head. Yeah. But what's amazing is that when you have somebody who's such a genius like Cameron is, and that word gets thrown around a lot, but, but Cameron, James Cameron is obviously, I think, a genius. Oh, absolutely. When you have somebody with that degree of skill and aptitude and enthusiasm, just like I said earlier, like he, he could make a movie about a monkey wrench and it would probably be a really emotionally heartfelt, beautiful mm-hmm. thing. You know, John mm-hmm. Lasseter is another example of, of a filmmaker like that. Yeah. But basically, they can tackle anything and they can tell an amazing story. Yeah. So then you say, what separates him from people like Steven Spielberg, people like Martin, La- like John Lasseter, people like Christopher Nolan? And I think to me, and you you articulated this nicely, the difference is the technical stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, Ridley Scott was a draftsman. He was an, a visual artist. He had an amazing sense of proportion and geometry and scale and color and composition that, to my mind, is is only rivaled by Stanley Kubrick and, and Hitchcock, maybe, in terms of filmmaking. Um, Cameron doesn't like have that. that anymore. Well, I, I well, I, I, I disagree, but, but that's, I have that's to make. I have to. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have on. to do an aside really quick, though. Because we're talking about something that's been a light bulb moment for me. And I know that this is not a, um, there's been a, obviously not contention, but discussion and disagreement about who likes Covenant, who doesn't like Covenant. Ooh, bring it on, <laughs> But I, I've had this epiphany right now as we're discussing James Cameron and that he is all heart. That's what I'm missing from Prometheus and Covenant. That's what I'm missing from Ridley Scott's new movies. This movie that did have heart, he didn't even have any hand in writing, which was The Martian. That's the last movie. I feel no heart in his films. There's nothing that pulls at my heartstrings. And the one person that did, I've said this before, is Ferris. I don't mean to get into the nitty-gritty of like, oh, Ridley Scott. But this is this is a big moment for me because I, I've been trying to figure out, well, what is it about these movies that I'm not connecting with? There's no heart. Not to say that there's not heart of him putting all his all into it and throwing himself into it. That's there. What mm-hmm. I'm saying is the heart of, of, of Ripley and what J- David Fincher threw into that story and what James Cameron threw into Aliens and what the Ridley Scott from the late 70s and 80s threw into Alien and Blade Runner and Legend. Um, and then even 1492 and, uh, the one, that uh, the kingdom of heaven, there's such an enormity of heart, an enormity of almost like bubbling love. It's kind of a stupid way to describe it. I don't feel that at all in these movies. Not at all. Well, I, I, I feel it in a different way. And I think that this touches on something that you brought up in our previous episode about age. Mm-hmm. I think that you you can't talk about these movies, which have been out for so long, without discussing the age of the people who make them, right? The ones that we talk about as being undisputable masterpieces, Alien and Aliens, and for you and me and many others in fandom, Alien 3, were all made by young filmmakers. Ridley Scott wasn't super, he was in his 40s, but still, you know, compared to now, right? Yeah. Um, These were people who were, they had so much to prove, they had so much to, to, um, they had so much on the line in terms of their early reputation, getting a break in the business, they were reaching for the stars, you know what I mean? But they were also comparatively young. And I think you have a very different world outlook when you are 30 years old than you do when you're 80 years old. And I think, to be honest, if you're still making the same movies at age 82 that you made as a 42-year-old, I think you're not doing it right. I think you have to take stock. Of, and, and now this is not to say that 
he should be the one direct Ridley Scott should be the one directing alien films in his 80s. I'm not saying I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that you have to think of it in terms of what he is trying to say as somebody who knows they're running out of time, as somebody who has been through a shitload of stuff and doesn't have very, I mean there are reasons he's being so manic right now. Like he I mean his brothers are both dead tragically. He is in his 80s. He is not, you know, he, he, was he going to live to be 100? I mean, no. This guy's been running hard his whole life. You know what I mean? Mm. And he has a lot to say. He's somebody who's bubbling over and he is not going gently into the good night. And he wants to get these things out. And I don't think that he's rushing them at all. I don't get that sense. I, I know that's something that comes up sometimes. And maybe there's a case to be made for it. I feel a sense of desperation from him that there are ideas that he wants to tackle before he goes. And I think that to him, the emotional aspect comes in dealing with those themes that he cares about. I mean, Ridley Scott is an atheist making a movie about gods. You know what I mean? Like, these are things that he he's wrestling with, that he's trying to figure out before he goes. So I think that the heart is there. It's just not quite as sort of naive. No. And I, I don't say naive in a bad way. No, I, I agree with you, actually. I 100% agree with you. But I think the problem here is... When you're processing things at the end of your life, which Ridley Scott is closer to the end, he's 40 years older than me, he's like 45 years older than you or whatever, um, he's processing things that we will all process the end of our lives. What does it mean? Why are we here? Um, but in a, with an audience that are, that are 20 to 45-year-olds, that's a problem. Right, connect, but connect. but if I'm getting a Ridley Scott movie, I don't want him to make that movie. I don't no, want him but to it's, make. It's not, a, it's not about him making that movie. I think what we're going through, and it's I don't want to say Ridley Scott, you've got to make a movie uh, that relates to me as a 42 year old, or Patrick as a 35 year old, or 33 year old, and 33. And um, I'm 10. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> not about it's not about wanting him to. This is I, I'm talking about. A business decision here. I'm talking about Fox as as a studio. The kinds of films that are going to relate to people to wider audiences are films that more people are going to relate to. And and even though all of those things that we discuss, like what it's like to be human, when we in our Blade Runner podcast, what does that mean? Really deep things that obviously there's a lot of audiences that don't aren't interested in that either look at blade runner look at blade runner 2049 there was not a lot of connect connection there they're heady topics i get it those heady topics that ridley scott is known for he then brought into the alien series it's not right for the series and i'm not saying i disagree um, and I'm not saying that it's not right like let's not talk about them i'm saying you have to pair those ideas with heart that's like why I can like for instance I, I'm I saying up the like name. we're gonna be here for a while you know well, well go go ahead no last thing is I I I was doing some research on Anna Staline and if no one knows who Anna Staline is she is Deckard's I just I don't give a fuck uh, <laughs> oh is, no you can't do that <laughs> okay. Well, Anna Staline she is, is in Blade Runner in 2049 subscribe to our other podcast and <laughs> yes, then you will indeed. get many spoilers. <laughs> Yes, uh, but I was doing uh, I was doing uh, some research on her name because it's a palindrome. It's Anna backwards mm-hmm. and forwards. And then I was doing research on what the name Anna means. And Anna, there's all sorts of information on her meaning, but part of her meaning is she kind of prepares the way of Jesus. 
She's the Anna is the name of Mary's mother. Interestingly enough, no. But and what I'm saying all these things to say that all of these there's all these deep ideas and deep philosophies and deep heady ideas set within Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. I mean that's part of mm-hmm. it. But all of those ideas come with an intense sense of heart, an intense sense of rela- relational. Or the ability to relate from the audience. Now, obviously, it's not all the audience. It's a hard sell. It's a hard sell for a lot of people. Um, a lot so of I people say, give me, give me the hard sell any day, man. Me honestly. too. Me too. But a lot of people right? don't go into these movies. Most people want to go in, into a movie and be entertained. That's mm-hmm. just how it goes. And so, there's nothing wrong with that. But I do think that we should have room in our fandom for movies that don't come across like that. I right? would agree. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is. There needs to be a better balance of heart and ideas. Ideas are not enough. Alien was all heart. Even Resurrection, as shitty as that film was, there's a lot of heart in that movie. There's a lot of heart of who Ripley is, who Call was, even though those characters were shit. Even though Ripley's characters was, were, were shit. There was a lot of time spent in who she was and kind of dealing with the idea that she's a clone, whatever. I, I don't. I, but what I'm saying is, why these films are so uneven in fandom, why they're not as accepted even as Alien 3, and there's a lot more kind of general acceptance of Alien 3. You know, I will see people say, yeah, I don't like that movie. I'll probably see, if we do a post, I'll see 15 people who love Alien 3 and maybe four who are like, no, this movie's shit. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas with Covenant, completely divided, probably equally, maybe, maybe, it depends. Um, And then Prometheus, people just kind of throw it away. Um, the issue here is that Ridley Scott we're dealing with here is dealing with these lofty ideas that might have been with set within the Alien series, but have only been a part of them. Whereas with mm. the prequels, they're all of it. And that's that's the disconnect. That's why I could connect with parts of it. I can't connect with all of it. Whereas with the first three films, I can connect with all of it. I think... It's important to remember that when you have a movie, like, for example, The Force Awakens or especially The Last Jedi, which are go for the swing for the fences, audience hits that double down on the themes in the series and do a lot of fan service and also, you know, introduce some slightly new elements to things while being while basically doing everything right in terms of storytelling and in terms of being Star Wars films, in my opinion. Um, you have people who hate it so much that they send so many death threats to cast members that they quit. I, I think fandom in general is just, not, I think everybody assumes that they know the best, you know? I would agree. And I, I think agree. every movie that comes out, if I it's fall not into that too want, sometimes. I feel like sometimes I act as a gatekeeper and I, I don't want to, but yeah. sometimes I feel like I, I know the series better than Fox do. And I think, yeah, but in some but ways you, I, you say I feel categorical like I do. things, right? Like, because you say things like, for example, it can't be about ideas and no heart. It can't be about this and it can't be about that. Ridley Scott should not make this movie. He should make that movie. They shouldn't mm-hmm. hire him. They mm-hmm. shouldn't. And I oh, say, totally. Totally. And I say, I say, this guy's about to fucking die. He's a genius. I want to see what he has to say. And it's not going to ruin anything for me. There are parts of Covenant that you know I don't like. That yeah. I go, it's okay, because it's in the context of something that I really treasure. Prometheus, I don't, because I think it's just a, a dumb movie in a lot of ways. But but I, I want to hear an honest film from him while we still have him and then he's gone he's done with these prequels and then we can move on to something else but if neil blomkamp does this aliens ripoff that it seems like he wants to do and it seems like a lot of people want him to do and he brings back ripley and he does all of these 
bombastic set pieces, and he does a Force Awakens treatment, basically remaking Aliens. I I would have a very hard time. I'd have a hard time with that, that too. I would have a hard time you know? with that too. I really um, would. Absolutely. But this is a separate conversation. And 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 but, but just as we close out, I want to say that if Blomkamp does get the chance to do this at some point. I will be the first one in fucking theaters for that, and I will yeah. give it so many benefits of so many doubts. Well, Sigourney Weaver is going to be 70 next year, so that clock is either done or it's got two or three years left. I don't think it's going to happen, yeah. number one. But to, to wrap this up quickly, um, I, I, I do say things categorically, and sometimes I feel like I do know what's best. Not like Jamie knows best, everybody listen to Jamie, but I feel like I'm in. we, both of us, are in... Um, so connected to fandom we know mm-hmm. what people are responding to and the probably the biggest difference between you and me you can watch a movie and say see something in there and say yeah it's okay i cannot do that i can't right. do that there i i have things i want to say but i will bookmark them for next time <laughs> james cameron going back to him i think does a better job than anybody else of balancing the heart and the science and yes. i think that's something that people talk about a lot with him and i do think it's worth pointing out that he is a genuine scientist in his own right mm-hmm. not only is he great with these technical skills that go into filmmaking but he also is a deep sea explorer as i mentioned five times um he's somebody who does his foundations for research that he supports and that he's founded i mean he, he's a really genuine scientist and um in almost every film that he has made not everyone but, and I, I want to kind of talk through some of his movies with you. But most of them have been in the service of solving a scientific problem, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, Piranha 2, which kind of doesn't count. Although it's interesting, Piranha 2 is where he got to work with Lance Henriksen, you know, of course, which, which was yeah, important for Aliens. That's right. right. Um, what a fucking weird movie, though. But I love it. Um, I so there's. It in like 20 years. <laughs> either so there's there's you know that and aliens which is not necessarily a, a technical proving ground although a lot of the effects in it were groundbreaking at the time but then he has the abyss which is basically like how do you do computer generated imagery in a movie and make it believable right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have terminator 2 which is is sort of the continuation of that you have titanic which still looks amazing even though it's 30 how 20 years old now 97 20 so... 21 years old yeah yeah um, has a really long time in the world of computer-generated imagery, you know? Like we talked about in Resurrection, it's amazing to me that it looks as good as it does. It doesn't look perfect, it doesn't look like Titanic good, but it looks pretty good. And you look at the technology that they had to actually um, create those models, and it's like these primitive wireframes running on like Windows 95, literally. It's crazy. And Titanic was made on those systems, which is fucking crazy to me. These CAD systems from 30 years, from 25 years ago. Anyway, that was basically a, a way to prove that you could have historically accurate recreations of things that have been gone for a long time. And you could basically, and that was what everybody talked about when Titanic came out, was they were resurrecting the Titanic. And it really felt like that in theaters, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then he basically disappears for a decade and comes back with Avatar, yeah. which, say what you will about the storytelling, is a is actually a, a genuine breakthrough in technology in terms of filmmaking, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically an undisputable I mean, it's, it's almost in terms 10, of technology. It's, yeah, it's almost 10 years old and it's flawless. Yeah, and you're right. You look at what happened after that, and there were four years in there where Hollywood was only putting out 3D movies. Like, obviously, there were exceptions to that, but everything that had a budget of over 70 million dollars was put out in 3D primarily. You know, and you had. I remember specifically, like, the PlayStation started supporting 3D gaming. Every television set. This is sort of the pre 4K thing. Every TV that came out had 3D functionality in it. 
um, it was like, this is 3D's moment. And it's because of Avatar, right? Because that was all anybody could talk about. Yeah. Um, so Cameron has this track record of creating movies as an excuse to break boundaries in technology. Yes. And I think that's at the heart of his filmmaking. And he also understands the idea that when we go into the theater, we want to experience wonder. Movie making can take us to places that we've never been. Movie making mm-hmm. can we can leave the theater like oh my god! Like even watching Avatar and the places they go and the I can't remember the name of the mountains that float uh, the Hallelujah Mountains or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what they were called. Um, incredible! The world building in Avatar is incredible. Um, those creatures, the, that that Pandora feels like it lives and breathes. It feels like it's a legitimate world somewhere. I mean, mm-hmm. he really, and James Cameron knew that, okay, if I'm going to bring people here and tell them this story that's familiar, I got to blow their fucking minds. And he did. Mm-hmm. And he did. Um, he and did. I'm sure with the sequel, or however many he's going to make, he's going to blow our minds again. Um, Do you think we're I, really going to get one? I don't know. I, I think so eventually. I, I don't know. I mean, it's when is it supposed to be out? 2022 now? I don't even know. Um, I, don't, I, don't have, I have no idea. He was, I mean, he's been pushing up the the release date like every year oh another six months another year whatever I don't really care I mean mm-hmm. I'll see it when it comes out but someone did make a comment and I think we read it like if he wasn't so embroiled in these Avatar films we could we could get other films but I also think that James Cameron gets bored I don't think he said oh, about yeah. he said about the Alien series he goes you know how, how much further can we discuss, explore in the series? At the same time, I'm like, dude, you're sitting there going to make six sequels to Avatar. You're, you've been a part of six sequels to Terminator 2, and then you're going to shit on Alien? Come on. Yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> there's as much there as you bring it, as you bring to it. And I think if James Cameron, you know, and he was going to make an Alien film, you know, we talked, we mm-hmm. haven't even talked about this. Him and Ridley Scott were going to collaborate. Ridley Scott was going to re- direct. James Cameron was going to write, and they sat down to write an Alien 5, and Fox yep. said no. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. Yeah. Oh, don't even that's get a whole That's a whole separate, a whole separate barrel of monkeys. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an episode right there. Um, um, you know, a, a movie that we haven't really talked about yet is True Lies, which came out in between... Uh, it was before Titanic for him. That's a, that's another awesome movie, and that, that to me is, is very much the heart aspect, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not very imbued with science. But at the heart of it, you have this kind of funny, mismatched relationship with Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, again, mm-hmm. is another another Cameron guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a totally rewarding movie to watch. I've seen that, you know, over and over again. And I think it's hilarious and it's fun and it's action-packed. Um, and that's an interesting kind of side excursion of his that I think shows that sort of traditional Hollywood skill that he has. And I just feel like, you know, we talk a lot about how brilliant he is. Part of that brilliance is his ability to sort of pull off anything, you know. Like, he's somebody who, I mean, we think about his journey as a person. Like, this was this this kid who grew up nowhere near Hollywood, fell in love with science fiction, and then mastered it to such an immense degree at such a young age, you know? Who put out all of these different films that have such different tones to them, and do such different technological things, and they're all so convincing, and they're all so genuine. Mm-hmm. And then he can do something like True Lies, which I would never in a million... If, if you hadn't told me that James Cameron had directed that, I probably would never have guessed it, you know? Well, I would um, I mean, it's got his blue aesthetic, it's got Bill Paxton, it's got some of his major players. It's it does It does have the, the... From a casting standpoint. But I, I mean, mean from, a, a, from a storytelling standpoint, it's, yeah, it's very it different. feel like a James Cameron. Yeah, yeah it is. It's not sci-fi, um, it's, it's different. It's a very different film for him, for sure. It's a movie that feels like, an, like I mean, because he wrote the first Blood part, whatever screenplay too. Like he's somebody who he's That's done right. these weird traditional 
Hollywood things as well. Mm-hmm. And then he has Titanic after True Lies, yeah. which is like, again, a totally different. I mean, that's like that, that, that basically reignited Hollywood's lust for the epics, you know, that we mm-hmm. used to get all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, one of my favorite aspects of Titanic was getting it on VHS and having the, the box set for one movie. You I know, remember. To switch the tapes yep. out. Yeah. Um, I got to say, so I saw Titanic when I was 12 in theaters. My friend Todd and I went and saw it with his mom, and I was fucking bawling. I was crying. I cried. In that movie. I was a mess in that movie. Um, and I haven't really seen it since then. Like, I've seen parts of it, but I never, like, have you, you've seen it since then, I'm imagining? Uh, I haven't. I have not seen Titanic really? in 20, 15 years. I saw Titanic four times in the theater. Um, wow. I went to a screening the night before it opened, I think. Um, oh, you were like you were hardcore. I was in college at the. Were time. Were you a Leo fan? Did you have a T-shirt? No, I did. Yeah, not you did. Yeah, I did you, not. Yeah, you did. I was excited about it, but I thought TV it was fantastic. Um, but I did buy the soundtrack. You know, that's I did. Good, that's James uh, Horner again. Yeah, James Horner, right? yeah. Uh, they, they, James yeah, Horner, they, yeah, it's they, another clever. They stole Enya's music and replayed it, and there was a big. And I was a fan of Anya still at that point. You love so. Anya too, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if if there could be a movie where it's just Anya and Leo, uh, that's got Jamie. No, that's no, it's not. That's I do not like Leo. Yeah. You I fucking like love Leo. Yeah, he's, <laughs> but a, a, a great collaborator with Martin Scorsese. Again, that's true, and uh, he was great in The Revenant. Fantastic film. Anyways, mm, back to James Cameron. What is it, Private? How do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? Um, um, what so was James interesting Cam- about James Cameron though is he. Has, he's at the point now, we're going to obviously get back into Aliens, but he's at this place now where he played the Holly, he did, he did the Hollywood thing. He did all, mm-hmm. everything that he needed to do. Now he's his own mogul. Now he can tell right. whatever story he wants to tell because he's made right. enough money. And they're like, whatever you want to do, James Cameron, here's a million dollars. Here's a hundred million dollars. Here's, here's another all of the money we have. I mean, the budgets that he gets for these movies are mm-hmm. fucking crazy. Yeah. Let alone the fact that he can just pay out of pocket to do this because he has so much money. Oh, but like, yeah. but I mean, but every, it's like every movie that he has made, every big budget picture that he's made has gotten basically a record breaking amount. Of, like Titanic, that was the story. It was like two hundred. It was like the first two hundred million dollar budget, right? Well, no. Um, uh, well, I don't know. I know Waterworld. Remember Waterworld? That was like the biggest. The, the, <laughs> that was a huge. Was it two hundred million? Too. It might have been one hundred and twenty-five million at the point. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, you're probably it, right. It was something like that, but it, it probably broke Waterworld's record. It, it was, yeah. it was oh, just yeah. like everybody was talking about this two hundred million dollar mark, and then it grossed obviously so much more than that. Um, and Avatar is the same thing. Yeah. What I think is cool about Cameron is that after Titanic, before Avatar, as he's developing this three D technology, he's basically making documentaries. Mm-hmm. and scaling things back a lot. And he has that one that I, I really like, The Ghosts of the Abyss, the IMAX documentary yes, from the early 2000s. Fantastic. Um, and, and you get to see like really where his heart lies in the early 2000s, which is in the stereoscopic 3D technology. Um, Ghosts of the Abyss was very much a proving ground for that, um, as was Aliens of the Deep, which is another one of these great IMAX things, um, which I'm such a sorry. I fucking love. Like I, every time, like there's a new IMAX documentary feature, I'm fucking there. I like. Yeah. Lo- I love those yeah. things. Yeah, me too. Um, and we got a bunch of them from James Cameron while he was working on Avatar, which I just absolutely love. Um, and then all of a sudden, you have Avatar come out, and that kind of changes everything in, in Hollywood again. And then, and then nothing. We have not had another film from him since that, and that's been basically a decade, which is crazy. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it is you know? a long time. I, I, and I think part of it is if he would just do approach 
Avatar, like, oh, I want to do one more, and then maybe another one after that. No, he wants, he's doing, like, four movies at once. Four or six mm-hmm. movies at once. So, um, it's, 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 I love that he can do what he wants to. I mean, I, who am I to tell James Cameron what he can do? And, um, but he's, he has paid his dues, and he, now he's making the movies he wants to make. And it's unfortunate yeah. because he can, not unfortunate, it's fortunate for him, but it's unfortunate for those of us where he could have given us in the last 10 years, two or three more films that really could have impacted us. And, you know, even thinking about Titanic, Titanic is also all heart. That's what that movie is. It's all heart. Oh, yeah. Uh, married is. to tech, uh, technological wizard wizardry. Um, mm-hmm. And he's the man for that. And I, as we kind of reel back into Aliens and his choice for Aliens, and, you know, he met, you know, during production, he met some... He faced some challenges there with crews, with people who didn't understand him, even with the studio and people second-guessing him. Um, but I, I think about the script that he wrote and the character of Ripley and how we know her the way we do, and she's indelible to us because of Aliens. Not because of Alien. Mm-hmm. And she is as indelible to us in Alien 3 because of what she went through in Aliens. Without Aliens, we would not be as connected to Ripley as we are. James Cameron made Ripley who she is. She, yeah, he did. But again, it was almost by chance because he was already making a movie mm-hmm. about this female protagonist and an alien queen, and it was just the right elements in place. You know, yeah. he was there, he saw Alien in theaters, and that was a huge impact on him as well. So I'm sure that part of why he was going in the direction of that character has in, in some way was affected by by his viewing experience with alien but it's also important to note that cameron has consistently been singled out as somebody who has had fascinating roles for female leads obviously yes. linda hamilton being a prime example of that yeah. right yeah um but but that's something else that he's done that i think has been really fascinating um and he he also comes from the culture and we'll get into this more when we talk about have our kind of our Ripley aliens episode eventually. But mm-hmm. James Cameron does not is not was not born and raised in American culture. The American culture, uh, the way we look at women, the way we treat women, the way women are treated in in um, corporate settings, everything. It's been tumultuous and that's a nice word I'm using. It's been way mm-hmm. worse than tumultuous. It's been horrible for women. Um, but James Cameron came from a different society that was far more, it wasn't perfect by any means, but it was far more level in terms of the playing field for women. And he really approaches women as characters and not as genders. Yeah. And that's his genius. Whereas a lot of writers, they're thinking, oh, I'm writing a woman. James Cameron is, and this is, I think, Ridley Scott and David Fincher um, tapped into this too. They realized this is not about Ripley being a woman. This is about a mm-hmm. character. Character right. first. And that's why we love her, because we right. engage character first. But what's cool, though, is that she's not made into a genderless person, which, which no, I, she I, isn't. I, I really like, right? There's Whereas an alien, she, an alien, she basically is. Cause, because Alien, of course, famously was, was just basically did the pronouns are switched for her. you know, um, And like any sort of potential femininities in the film kind of came about almost accidentally, except for the end. Um, in Aliens, from the very beginning, obviously it was written for that female character, and it's also revealed that she's a mother. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just like Linda, like uh, I keep saying, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor is a mother, and that's actually at the core of her character. But but just like real mothers are, like your mother and my mother, 
they're they're very much more than quote unquote just a mom, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there there's there are multitudes of experience and being within them, you know? Yes, just like there are in anybody. But absolutely. colored by the fact that they're mothers is really fascinating. He uses that biological connection between women and children to empower them. And he yeah. also doesn't use it to encapsulate them either. So Gordon Weaver is a mother, but she just she is way more than just a mother. Whereas mm-hmm. some people would be like some people would be like, oh no, yeah, she's a mother, that's what gives her power. No, that's not what right. gave Ripley her power. That's right. what emboldened Ripley. That's what made her who she was in part. Her integrity gave her power. Her, mm-hmm. her, her strength of mind, her everything gave her power. And then that sense of, that connection between a mother and her child, um, further pushed that narrative of who she is mm-hmm. even closer to our hearts, essentially. Right. Now, it's funny because in the special edition, uh, so I mean, Alien 3 was made for people who hadn't seen the special edition, obviously, right? So in Alien 3, there's no discussion about Ellen, about Amanda Ripley. There's no discussion about who's waiting for her back on Earth. Um, but if, if you watch the special edition of Aliens, which I think most of us do, it's, it's kind of a fragmentary moment, right? Which I used to think was stupid, honestly, as a kid. I, I used to really not like that part of the movie because it felt like thrown in as an afterthought because it was because it was cut from the film and there were other things cut subsequent to that that would have reinforced this whole thing and then as i grew older and especially as i became a parent myself the relationship with newt took on so many more layers of meaning and not just layers of meaning in terms of like oh this is the daughter she never had or never got to raise or you know this is her kind of hearkening back to what it was like to be a mom but the connection on a human to human level between ripley and newt is so multivaried and complex and beautiful and honest, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it, it that moment where she's wiping away the soot from Newt's face, and you can tell that she is somebody who has interacted with a young child mm-hmm. before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So even if even if we hadn't been told that she had a daughter on Earth who was now dead, um, you would get a sense of it because she was such a natural and bringing Newt back from the brink of complete despair, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's part of her strength as a character and part of her heroism, you know? And what I love about the way Cameron writes female characters is that it is not... They're not written just as female characters. They're written as characters with all of these experiences that are unique because of their experience as women, right? That are special because of that. But th- but they don't th- those things don't define the role. Like they can be heroic and they can do things that men do in movies, but they can also do things that men can do in movies, and that's important. And likewise, it's important when you're when you're writing a male character to to look for avenues to differentiate that character from a female character, but not put make that make it about the fact that they're not a woman, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like he does such a good job of that. And I think part of why Ripley in Aliens is so indelible is because she isn't just a strong female hero it's because she is one of the strongest heroes in cinema history i think absolutely and uh to briefly touch upon newt um what's interesting about the way cameron wrote newt is the survivor of hadley's hope the only survivor they found isn't just this child it's a girl child it's a girl child Mm -hmm. um which is historically throughout human history women have always been kind of the throwaway whatever it's a girl even in, even in, in societies today, women might abort babies if they're girls because they want a boy or yeah. girls aren't looked upon as, as important. They want a boy to, to, 
to carry on the family name, to make money for the family. Um, and James Cameron not only wrote Ripley the way that he did, but he introduced this girl, this young girl who had strength of character to survive in this place. Yes. And the this only person who did, you know, was a little girl in this colony and, with 180 something or how many, I can't remember how many people are. Yeah. 182. Um, like yeah. The, the fact that out of all of those people, the only one who survived was not only a girl. She was a child. Yeah. She was a little kid, you know, yeah. and, a simple and the, little kid the with a sweet school picture, you know, totally. Who was just one day in class. And then the next day in the, in the grips of hell. And, and the survive. reflection between where, and it's interesting too, because we talk about where people draw strength, where Ripley draws strength, where Newt draws strength, even the difference between Hicks and Hudson, where Hudson is peripheral. Everything, all of his strength is like peripheral. It's like Samson. It's my gear. It's my, it's my attitude. It's, it's, I'm a Marine. It's all of these things. And then all of those things are pulled away because they were, they are useless in the face of these aliens. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he meets this little girl and this woman, Newt and Ripley, who have none of those things, but have survived. Um, and their strength of character has made them stronger characters, a stronger character than Hudson because Hudson's all attitude. He's not all heart or he's not all inner strength. He doesn't have inner strength, but then you, but he finds uh, it. He does find it. Ah, sort of. Um, he's, he's kind of pulled into it. She's like, you know, Ripley says, you know, just deal with it, Hudson, because I'm tired of your bullshit. You know, she, <laughs> right, really, right. she really has to kind of like I love him and her and Hicks were really like, <laughs> wake the fuck up and shut up. Just, you know, um, but again, it's a testament to James Cameron, how he wrote all of these characters so differently. How Hicks mm-hmm. is also Marine, but he's so soft and gentle and he's mm-hmm. not all machismo. And then you have this relationship between Drake and and. Um, Vasquez. Vasquez, and it's not sexual. It is a tender, I love that. It is tender. That. It is a tender, loyal friendship between these two. It's a deep friendship. They're bros almost. She's genderless, and I don't mean genderless in a bad way. She's genderless in a way where it doesn't matter to Drake. He's her bro, mm-hmm. or she's his bro, or whatever you know. There and James Cameron had the strength of, of a as a writer to know. That these subtleties are what people gravitate to. That's why we can post a photo of Vasquez and everybody, any man from any walk of life and any political and any political kind of leaning can say, "Fuck yeah, it's Vasquez." They don't even give a shit that she's a woman or that mm-hmm. she's that she's obviously um, uh, uh, butch or uh, classically masculine in her demeanor. She is. No one even talks about that because she's awesome and she's got a great friendship and a loyalty right. to Hudson as well. Even though she gives Hudson shit, there's a bond between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Cameron knew all this. I mean, which is, and I think this is getting at something. I think you and I both have many friends of different, um, backgrounds, you know, different, uh, you know, sexualities, different sort of gender identities and things like that. And I, I don't think of any of them in those terms first, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think of my gay friends as my gay friends. I don't think yeah. of, of my trans friends as trans friends. Like, they're yeah. just my friends, right? They're just people, I, yeah. Right? <laughs> I think that's what's so great is that we get that experience with these characters, right? Because they're not stereotypes. Because they're so clearly real that when well, – I like, when you're saying Vasquez is, like, classically butch, I, I, I really never thought of that. But, you're, I mean, you're right. She does, like, in a, in a lesser script, she would be, like, the butch character – 
who would be kind of the butt of jokes about like riding on a motorcycle or something like that. But in this movie, she's just Vasquez. Like, I don't fucking care what she looks like or what gender she is. She's just her, you know? And, and the moment that Hudson tries to box her into, hey, have you ever been mistaken mm-hmm. as a man? Or, um, and then her For classic man, yeah. line, no, have you? Um, have you? Sh- she kind of breaks that. She breaks that up like. like Immediately. And, in the and, first and, interaction. And all of you know? us watching are like, fuck Hicks. Like, how dare you? Like, we're <laughs> all on her yeah, side. Right. Like, she's more of a man than he is. Than you know? Hudson, like, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Hudson. He's Hicks. Um, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. He's um, Hicks. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a testament that it doesn't matter how Vasquez acted. It doesn't matter that her, her mannerisms were classically masculine a little bit and she right. wasn't like this girly girl. She mm-hmm. was a strong character, and that's all that people care about. It's amazing. It's just something I, f- I really feel like. I mean, you actually went to film school. I feel like it, I, I hope that they teach this script in character classes because, it, to me, it is like the best use of an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like Magnolia quality, I think, in terms of these characters having completely full and varied lives, even though they're not on screen for very long. Mm-hmm. I think it, something cool with Hicks, too. I mean, I, I really enjoyed talking about him last time with you because I think I personally touched on things in my own appreciation of him that I hadn't articulated before. Mm-hmm. And I think, as I've been thinking more about it this week, I've been looking more into sort of the background of Michael Bean when he came into the part and what his initial interviews were like. And they were all centered around machismo. Like, he was excited for the role because he was, like, excited to shoot the guns. And he was mm-hmm. excited to be an action star. And he was, like, he couldn't wait to try in the armor. And he was talking about how much he loved, like, the technology. And he loved, like, running and gunning and all these things. And it's funny because then, like, it's like the shoot happened and all of that went away, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, he's not that – he's not the the archetype. And that's what's amazing. So many movies fall apart because it uses archetypal people to be shorthand to greater themes. And Aliens doesn't do that, right? Yeah. In Aliens, you, you, you could say, oh, Hudson's like the goofy sort of like, you know, California dude – and like Apone is a sort of hard ass, but there. But the second any conflict happens, all of that melts away, just like it does in real life. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it's just humans. Mm-hmm. But it's humans who are colored by a wealth of experience that we don't we aren't privy to. You know, yeah. we don't get any backstory on anybody in Aliens. Um, we come into these people's lives as they emerge from hypersleep, literally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they just set about their day, and they're fucking cranky, and they're playing games at the dinner table, and they're hating cornbread. And then all of a sudden they're in this hell situation and, and, and there are no doubts that they're real, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, as we close out, I, I, I think we should talk a little bit about specifically Ripley in the movie a little more and about some things that Sigourney Weaver said. So I have some quotes here that I dug up. Um, and again, just like our last episode, a lot of this is on... Strange Shapes, uh, the Alien series WordPress blog that that yeah. we just love. I, I keep forgetting who. Is let me add. A, let me add an yeah, anecdote yeah, yeah. to Go this ahead. last thing, just because yeah. you're talking about Hicks. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting, uh, uh, again, to point back to James Cameron's writing. So we're getting close towards to the end of the movie. Hicks has been uh, no um, Newt has been taken um, from Ripley. They're trying to get out. They go into the elevator. An alien pops in. Splatter. Hicks gets hit. Um, Ripley's trying to help him. He's obviously uh, in, sort of incapacitated. She has to get him to the ship. Hicks could have said, we cannot get her. Mm-hmm. We can't get her. We got to get out of here. 
he knew better. He knew that this girl is this woman's heart now. This is her heart. She has to. And it's uh, it's a version of her going back for for Jones, but instead of Jones, it's a little girl. It's her right, little but, girl. But, what's, but what works so great about it is exactly what you said, is that we see that in Ripley before she really actualizes in Aliens, yeah. right? Yeah. Because yeah. like we said last time, in Alien, she does heroic acts, but they're not truly heroic because they're really in the Yeah, they're foreshadowed in Alien, right? for sure. But they're foreshadowed. In Aliens, she gets the chance to prove that all of those things weren't just for her own self preservation mm-hmm. that she's mm-hmm. a hero yeah right yeah and hicks is really aware of that from the very beginning he and something, is. Else that I, something else that i love about hicks and ripley so much is that their relationship is so sweet and real mm-hmm. and based on such respect you know yeah. it's yeah. funny because james cameron has been through like four marriages and most of them have lasted for a couple of years you know you would think that he might have more issues with um, understanding relationships than would it would appear on screen to be the case, but honestly, he seems to really understand that a, a, a true relationship is built on respect and trust and admiration. You know, and you see that when Hicks looks at Ripley, you see the depth of respect that he has for her, and she yeah. for him, yeah. and she thinks he's funny. You know, yeah. she yeah. thinks he looks goofy. And you know? when he's on the ship, the drop ship, and um, she tells Bishop, "I don't want to hear about it. She's out there." And and uh, and then Hip goes, we're not going anywhere. You know, he's got his hand in yeah. his eye or whatever. Yeah, right, um, right, right. Even in his state, he's he's kind of supporting her and knowing that we have to do this. Yes. Maybe it will cost us our lives. It could, but we have to. But do it's this worth it because if you don't do that, then why the fuck are you alive? You Absolutely. know, and Absolutely. that's what Aliens is about, yeah. right? Aliens is a story at the ass end of space in a nightmare where the characters don't lose sight of how fucking precious it is to be alive in this Mm -hmm. crazy world, right? Mm -hmm. Where people like Vasquez and Gorman, who have hated each other the entire time up to that point, can find a moment of total merging in death and and do something crazy brave together that will end both of their lives and completely redeem Gorman in that Mm -hmm. moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Where these characters have... Like at at the at the very end of the line, except for Burke, <laughs> they realize how precious it is that they've had this journey together. And you're mm-hmm. right. When Hicks is lying there incapacitated, um, and and he is, you know, on paper at least the governing party in this situation, and he, as he's done the entire time, you know, Ripley has saved his ass so many times. She's saved everybody so many times. She's come out there to help them, and he says, "Of course, you should go back and get her. She's a child." Mm-hmm. You need to save her. You can, yeah. and you believe in it. Yeah. And you're right. Like he did that fully, knowing that that could be the last decision he ever made. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. But but he told Bishop to stay, and that's yeah. in itself, I think, really important. Um. So I'm, I want to go to those quotes really quick as we close. Um. And also to clarify that the uh that strange shapes the blog is by Valaquin, who is a Scottish dude who many people who listen to the show are friends with. I, I'm not yet, but I should reach out to him because I've been reading this shit for <laughs> years now. Um, and, and if you haven't been to alienseries.wordpress.com, the address for Strange Shapes, really, I know you have, but um, just people listening to this, it's a it's an amazing resource. And, yes, it is. And not only just the, the long-form articles, but just the um, interviews that I'm drawing from, he has many of the texts all written out there. So big up to Valaquin. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the evolution of Ripley as a character as he wrote the script, and then we can kind of close um, Sigourney Weaver did an interview in Starburst uh, magazine in 1987 where she talks a little bit about the the difference between Ripley and Aliens and Ripley and Alien. She says, um, Ripley is very different. 
The horrific experience she endured on the Nostromo changed her irrevocably from the eager young ensign to a really haunted person, and we must remember that she drifted in space for 57 years. I firmly believe that Ripley's mind never stopped working while she slept. She's probably been over that experience in various nightmare forms through the years. Ripley has to start life over again, and finds it very difficult to do so. There are so many ghosts in her life. And yet she agrees to face the horror once again. She feels she must finally lay to rest the ghosts and sadness of the past, or there will be no future for her. But once on the planet and faced with the nightmarish situation, she finds a purpose. She finds she can identify with a little girl, Newt, who is the only other person to experience what Ripley experienced and survive. She's a fellow creature who shares the same nightmare. When Ripley finds her, her life means something again. So in saving Newt, she was also saving herself. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that is, is what's so powerful. So it's not, quote-unquote, just this surrogate mother experience. It's more than that. It's, it's a deeper bond from shared tragedy to shared hope, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And true heroes do that. You know, part of why I love Spider-Man so much is because that is at the core of who he is, you know? That he's a hero because it's just the right thing to do. You know, if you if you are able to save people, if you're in a situation where you can, even if it puts yourself in danger, if you can pull it off, you should do it. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 we're faced with those decisions every single day of our lives, right? In small ways and in big ways. Sometimes it's as simple as reaching out to a friend in trouble who's having an emotionally difficult time. Sometimes it means staying late at work so you can pay the bills so that you know your your friends can eat. You know, if you're helping support somebody. Sometimes it's taking somebody in if they're having a hard time. Um, but the reality is, is that we all have the capacity for heroism in our lives. You know, we all have the ability to do these things. And it, you don't have to travel to the ascent of space on a nightmare mission with people you've never met and face unspeakable terror, you know? Mm-hmm. But her example in this movie of the extremes that she's willing to go to to, to find hope and to survive... I think can really inform us and inform our kids and subsequent generations for years and years to come about what it means to be a person and what it means to have hope. So when I say that the difference to me between alien and aliens, even though alien still is the one that I care more about personally, aliens is so rife with optimism. And I think it took a 30 something year old fresh faced kid making one of his first films ever totally out of his depth and totally in love with cinema and the possibilities of storytelling to make this unique miraculous thing that will be eternally relevant and that we can come back to again and again and again and find meaning and truth in and i think it's a fucking masterpiece i think you said it i think that that's uh all she wrote for this episode sounds good um Thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon with another uh, episode in our 40 Miles of Bad Road series. Can't wait. See you guys. For more on this and our other projects, please visit www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, find us on our closed Facebook group, Building Better Worlds. To support the show, please consider visiting www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support.
we've got some great perks available. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We can't tell you how much your support means to us, but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better, more ambitious, and more dynamic content for years to come.